you have your Bibles, take them out and open to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I can't say this enough. You need to catch up where you miss because Ecclesiastes is such an amazing, uh, difficult book, quite frankly. And so we'll come to passages and you, if you're a guest or you just catch one message and you take it in isolation, you, you might not really get the whole story. We need to understand how it fits together as we move through the book. I can tell you, for example, last week we ended with a piece of chocolate which was delightful, uh, we will not be passing out chocolate today out of this passage, okay? It'll be a rather weighty passage, as, as we'll see in a moment. How many of you are familiar with the term gaslighting? Anybody? A number? Yeah, it's not about lighting logs or anything like that or lighting your lamppost. Uh, it was the American Dialect Society's most useful word of 2016 because about that time it became very prevalent in our culture. Gaslighting is when another person manipulates another person into questioning their sense of reality. That's what gaslighting is. Now it comes from a term from the title of a movie, 1944, movie called Gaslight. Spoiler alert, okay? Not, I don't know if you're going to go watch a 1944 movie, but, uh, you know, the movie is about a, a man who is, is committing a robbery. He's trying to get these jewels from a lady, and in the act of getting the jewels, he kills her, and he doesn't get the jewels. The lady's niece grows up, and unbeknownst to her, marries this man, and he still wants the jewels, and he marries her just so he can get in the house that has the jewels. And the movie unfolds like this. He's, they're in the house and suspiciously he begins searching the house for the jewels. And at times he would go into the attic. And when he went into the attic, he had to adjust the gas lights in the home. And all the lights in the whole home would flicker. And she would notice this at night and hear steps in the attic. And she confronted him and said, I've heard these steps in the gas lights. And what would he do? He said, you're just imagining that. That's just the breeze that's blowing through. And throughout the whole movie, he does things that are so suspicious. She sees him do it. She hears him do it. And every time she confronts him, he says, that's just your imagination. What, what you saw, that's not what you saw. What, what you heard me say, that's not what you heard me say. Now, if you've ever been gaslighted, which I think all of us at some level have, it is harmful and destructive and I you know many of us have gaslighted others you know we it's to call into it's to call into question someone's reality and then suddenly they're thinking maybe I'm going crazy because I sure enough thought that happened I want to suggest that you and I are incessantly gaslighted by the world the flesh and the devil the three enemies of our soul what do you mean? What I mean by this is, I want you to think about how those three, those three conspire and always conspire, even as they did in the garden. When the serpent started his conversation with the word indeed, and it wasn't like indeed, it was this. Indeed? He goes up. Eve, did, did God really say you would, you would die? He, said, he really said, can't... Eve, you weren't even there because, as I understand it, he, he told Adam. So maybe, 
Maybe you misheard Adam when he, I, I don't know that he really said, and suddenly what does Eve do? She, she questions her reality rather than the gaslighter, the liar. And I want to say all through life, you all, we can follow the same pattern if we're not careful. And then suddenly we're questioning what is, we know this reality. And yet the world, the flesh, and the devil are whispering, no, no, that's not really what, you need to go this way. What I love about the book of Ecclesiastes, it is kryptonite to gaslighters. It destroys them. And he'll continue that destruction with truth today. We're going to pick up the second half. You know, last week, uh, Rob took us through this first, pass, this first part of chapter 2. And by the way, uh, if you missed it, again, I want to say to you, please catch up with that. And I'll say this about Rob's message last week. I, I had to watch it because to prepare for this message. And when I finished that message, I picked up my phone, and I sent a text to Rob Sweet and said, Wow, that was amazing. And Rob gave us a theology of pleasure. See, see we're, we've been tricked into believing that pleasure is going to satisfy and, and even that pleasure is evil or wrong. And Rob said, no, 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 let's take what the Bible says. And he gave us a theology of pleasure such that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and we as God's people, oh my, we can enjoy the pleasures of life far more than any other people. I hope you will grab that. Well, now we're going to pick up the second half of chapter 2 and, and, and we're going to watch the, the, the preacher as he went down the path of pleasure to fulfill the longing of his soul and came to a dead end. He's now going, okay, I, I'm going to go down the path of wisdom and work. Okay, these are the two big headings we're under. I'm going down to the path of, of wisdom. I, mean, I can be wise enough, smart enough, know enough that I'll, I'll, I'll satisfy the longing and yearning of my heart. Or I'll go to work and I'll work my tail off and then I'll produce this stuff and I'll be able to pass it on to the next generation and my legacy will give me meaning and significance. You know, it's kind of like, well, both, neither of those is really bad, are they? We're going to watch him go down these paths and we'll watch him come up with goose eggs as he does. Now, I've got three words I'm going to give you that, that move us through the passage, and the two are pretty brutal words, and the last is a deep measure of hope. There is a work that leads to, and here's the word, or there's a, there's a wisdom that leads to hate. There's the first word, hate. There's a wisdom that will lead you to hate life. The second is there's a work that will lead you to despair. So this is, this is kind of the weightiness of the passage. It's going to be hate, despair, or thirdly, the passage will end with an acceptance that leads to joy. So that's the outline of our text. We'll move through it. It's about hate. It's about despair. And it's about joy. Okay? Follow along in your Bibles. The question the text is going to ask us is, which will it be for us? Which will we choose? We start with a wisdom that leads to hate, that leads to hating life. He'll say it himself. Follow along in verses 12 to 17. He says, So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what's already been done? In other words, the guy that follows me, is he going to go any further than I did to figure this out? 
Answer, no, it's a rhetorical question. And he says, I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. Wow, the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. Why? For there's no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life. For the work which has been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after wind. On the one extreme, he says, I'm going to go to wisdom and intellect and knowledge. And on the other extreme, I'm going to go to madness and folly. It's not three things, folly, madness. It's mad folly over here. He's going to pursue. Well, he pursued the mad folly last week as Rob walked us through that. He comes to understand that uh, wisdom, wisdom's better than folly. Well, what do you mean, Solomon? Well, it's, it's like light is better than darkness. Well, what, what do you mean? Well, it's this. The wise man has his eyes in his head. Hello, what do you mean? <laughs> eyes in his head? He's simply saying this. The wise man opens his eyes and sees, and therefore the wise man, as he's walking, he sees the obstacles, and he can avoid them and move through life. But the fool goes through life stumbling over everything he hits. Make sense? That's all he's saying. So he's saying wisdom's better, but don't ever forget this. Solomon is not pursuing just what's better. He's pursuing what's, what's ultimate, ultimate truth. And as he looks at it, he goes, okay, one guy can move through life and not bump into things. The other guy bumps into things. But they all come to what? What equalizes the whole field? Say it out loud. See, Solomon's not going to stop at a superficial, superficial answer. And he looks at it and he goes, I mean, I can live my whole life wise. And yes, I may not hurt my shins or fall in a hole. But that person can live foolishly and we both end up in the grave. I hate my life. This whole thing is just vanity. Death is no respecter of wisdom, wealth, power, position. He says, you know that everyone dies and they're not remembered, but I, I want you to note this. Um, Solomon, you know, because you go, well, wait, we, we remember things. We, we have, there are, you know, statues around that remember people from a thousand years ago. We recall that. Well, the word that Solomon uses here, that word lasting remembrance, the Hebrew word literally means forever. So you see, Solomon's not saying, hey, you know, a person dies and, um, I mean, okay, they're, they're remembered for a thousand years. Um, that's awesome. No, he says they're remembered for a thousand years. That's nothing. That's nothing. What do you mean that's nothing? Because Solomon understands that if it's going to be a life that is remembered, or it's going to be something done that lasts and remembered is remembered. It's got to last how long? What's implied? How long does it need to last? Forever, y'all. And so think about it. Let's just take something that's 2,000 years old and we go, that, boy, that person lived a worthy life. We still talk about them 2,000 years later. 
2,000 years is the blink of your eye just now when you put it in the context of eternity. And so, uh, yeah, uh, wisdom's better than foolishness. But, you know, darn it, everyone dies. So what's the benefit of this? Well, he's going to choose his next path and say, well, maybe if I work hard enough and I have enough assets and I can actually pass that along to my, um, you know, pass it on, along as a legacy, then that's going to matter. That, that's going uh, that, to be meaningful and satisfy this yearning. Notice verses 18 to 23. It says, thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I've labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore, I completely despaired. It's getting intense. Of all the fruit of my labor for which I labored under the sun. And then he gives an example. When there's a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who's not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. What does a man get in all his labor, and in his striving with which he labors under the sun. Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is vanity. If, if uh, wisdom left him hating life, you see, hard work and, and the fact that he built a lot of things and that he's got to leave it to someone and that someone may not be wise, that made him completely despair of his life. Now, he's talking here about the fruit of labor. In other words, what he produced, what he made. Um, he, he considered the whole vastness of his realm. And I'm not going to go into this because Rob covered it last week. But you've got to understand, when he, let's just start here. When it says he made parks, uh, this is not like the park in your neighborhood. Think Central Park in New York that he, for himself, not for everyone else. See what I'm saying? It's just grand, the scope of the things that he did, public works and political achievements, all the things he did. But he looks at it and he goes, you know, I got all this gold, silver that he hoarded and collected. I'm going to give it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass on, but I'm going to leave it for someone and they hadn't worked as hard as I have. And this is, this is crazy that I have to do this. And by the way, I think he knew this. And I might say I know he knew this because God told him what was going to happen. Do you know all that he accumulated, did, built? Do you know he did die? And you know he did pass it on. He passed it along to a son named Rehoboam. And if you read the passage and the story, I'll tell you, those of you are familiar, Rehoboam, within days people. Solomon lives 40 years to build this. Within days, Rehoboam flushes it all down by his own foolishness. The kingdom, 12 tribes, blows apart and you have a divided kingdom in civil war for 200 years. Oh my gosh, Solomon knew it. And he said, this is vanity. This is futile. I want to pause here and I want to feel what Solomon felt. You know, he's going down these paths so we won't have to, right? 
Let's see who can join me in this song. It'll date you, but I think it really does capture uh, what's going on. Let's, and I mean it, you know, join with me, don't leave me hanging. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Who sang with me on that? A few of you did, you know. By the way, in the first service, I said, gloom, despair, and agony on me. And someone went, whoa, because that's how the song goes. And I went, oh, my gosh. And now I got a whole room and no one had the guts to do it because I know you knew that they do that big moan in the middle of the thing. Oh, my goodness. Well, he is in gloom, despair, and agony. And in all seriousness, I said this a few weeks back, and the Scripture is so clear about this. The place he is looks like the end of the world. It looks like the worst place you can be in life. And I'm not going to lie to you. It is. But it's also the best place you can be. Because God so orchestrates life that he gives us examples like Solomon. And he says, look, you know, pleasure is to be enjoyed. It can be awesome. But if you go down that path to satisfy your life, you're going to hurt yourself. And then don't choose work and career, because if you choose that, you're going to go down it, and you're gonna, it's going to mess you up. Don't choose wisdom and think you're going to be the bride. You know, he, he gives us those warnings, but what do we do generally? I'm not saying you, but I do. Even when he gives us warnings, what do we do? I don't know. He might be gaslighting me here, you know? I mean, he might be, this really pleasure may give me all that. And we go down the path. I mean, how do we explain this? We just do. And God allows us to. Because it seems we generally, I'm not talking about everyone, we generally will only wake up to the reality of the futility of these things when we're in it ourselves. I can tell my children, I'm going to tell you, this is where it's going to lead. And at the end of the day, it's like they got to go there and then they'll call me back and say, Dad, you were right. <laughs> But that's how we all are as adults. And, and if you're there, can I say to you, this is, this is the place of hope. This is God's strange, sovereign hand using suffering and hardship and difficulty to bring you to that place. Because what's going to happen right now is there's going to be a turn in the text. Now, it's, it's going to be a turn that's not like, whoop-de-doo, everything's great. But it's going to be a turn and then we're going to watch this turn kind of rise and fall as we go through the rest of the book. But there's a turn here at this point of gloom, despair, and agony when he recognizes it's all futility. Note verse 24. He says, There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him, without God? For to a person who is good in his sight, he, God, has given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. While to the sinner he's given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. What I want you to note there is that Solomon has now used God or referenced God six times. In three verses. 
But if you look at the previous chapters, he referenced God one time back in 114. And that reference was, God is the one who's making this difficult on you. God's the one who puts you the grievous task on, you know. And now he comes, he mentions God six times. Verse 24 is what some Bible teachers call the, the first of five carpe diem passages. Now, now why, it's, carpe diem is not in the text, it's Latin, of course. And what does carpe diem mean in Latin? Yeah, we all know that because, you know, it's kind of joined our vernacular after the, I think, 84 or somewhere, 88, somewhere movie, uh, uh, Dead Poet Society, Robin Williams, seize the day, you know, carpe diem. And uh, we all kind of bought into it. And, and, and you know, it's, what does carpe diem mean? It, it means seize the day, i.e., you can't get yesterday back, it's gone. And don't wait for the future because you, you may not get there, but you've got now seize it, and as he says, live an extraordinary life in the moment, you know, and we all, you know, as I was younger then, we all kind of come out, seize the day, you know, I'm going to do this, you know, and et cetera, et cetera, is, is, is Solomon saying, uh, you know, grab it all and get all the gusto you can, squeeze it out of life in, your mom, in the moment right now, is that what he's saying, and I'll say this, no, he's, 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 he, he, There's truth in that, but it's not the whole truth. See, and that's where we always get in trouble. Something's partially true, but we don't take the whole truth. Let me, let's look at the whole truth of what Solomon's telling us. What he is saying is, take the ordinary, everyday things of life. It, when he says to eat and drink, it's it's it's. It's two levels of meaning here. It's literally eat, literally enjoy food. Enjoy that you get to eat. It's pleasurable. It's get another kissy, you know, when you go home and eat. It's, still, it's pleasurable. Eat and, and drink. Enjoy that you get to drink and satisfy your thirst and drink different things, you know, et cetera. Eat and drink, but eat and drink is also life, all of life. Eat and drink, you know, and you always wonder where that phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, comes from. It's, it's always, you know, you can say, well, that was back in 1600s. No, that was back in the Bible. I mean, this is where this comes from. There's another passage in Isaiah and another passage which references this. You know, eat and drink. They'll later say, eat, drink, because you're about to die, which is what he's going to talk about, which is what he's already said. But the idea is, you know, this is so ordinary. Recognize that to eat and drink is from the hand of God. So it's pretty simple. Recognize that your work, your labor, uh, is God has given it to you. And accept it from Him. I know some of you are saying, well, if, um, if work is a gift from God, I would like a gift receipt. Because <laughs> then I could take it back and get some of this. So... Here's, you know, Rob gave us a theology of pleasure. Can I give you a, a very quick theology of work? Let's, let's let the Bible inform us on what is work. Well, I'm going to say this over and over again. I'll start here. Work's a gift. You go, man, I don't need any more of those gifts, you know. Understand that work predates the fall of humanity. 
So if this right here represents when Adam and Eve took the fruit and they ate and plunged us into fallenness, brokenness, separation from God because they rebelled and said, we're going to go our own way, we're going to trust ourselves. If this represents the fall, please understand from creation into the fall, God, oh my goodness, God gave Adam and Eve a J-O-B. He gave them work. And the work was care for this garden, and it's going to blow your mind. God said, I want you to have dominion over creation and co-reign and rule creation with me. Well, I was just thinking about administrative assistant, you know, but no, no, reign with me. How significant is that? You see, we were made for that. And when the fall comes along, it's not like, okay, everything was awesome over here, and now I'm going to introduce this thing called work. No, no, no. Work became more difficult, became very difficult because of the fall. But we were made to labor we're made for and to labor in something really significant and so the fall did not diminish that part of us made in the image of god made to do that which would last forever that would have deep meaning and significance that that wasn't erased it was distorted and so that part in every one of us, wherever you are in life, that, that begins to awaken, you go, I want to do something that matters. I really want my life to count. See, that's God-given. God has given us that. But we get it all twisted and contorted, and we go, so I think I'll do this. I think I'll do this. But when we pursue it on our own, it comes up, empty. You know, I used to think, you know, it'd be, you know, I guess the most powerful, significant job in the world might be President of the United States. And I'm not making fun of this at all. I'm going, President of the United States. But when you stop, I really want you to think about this if you know Christ. That is such a small job compared to what God invites his sons and daughters to, to join him in the work of the kingdom, and by the way, it's, all, it's on my mind, so I'm going to say it now, so I may not have to write emails. When I compared administrative assistant to the other one, Susan Russell, if you're out there, my administrative assistant, I didn't mean less, a lesser job, you know, or anyone else who's in those roles. I, I'll change that up, but you know what I'm saying. It's amazing. It's amazing what God has invited us to. We were made for it. Um, there's no higher calling, no more significant work than to see your work as a gift from God and then to do your work as unto Him. See, it's not this. It's not, um, boy, if you would become a missionary, that'd be, that'd be the real deal. No, 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 it's not that. Well, of course, Lord, you're a pastor. You get to teach the Bible. That's really matters. If I, I, if I did that, that, no, 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 I'm not, no. It's not about vocational Christian work per se. It's about work. I mean, what's your job? Do you understand God gave you that? Do you understand it's a gift? 
Whatever you're doing, you're a homemaker, you're a stay-at-home dad, I don't know, you're, you're, uh, you're retired and you're volunteering, uh, you're a teacher, you're a painter, you're in the healthcare industry, you're in music, you're a farmer, whatever, you see, your work matters. Your work, not this works better than that work. No, it all matters as we recognize what God has wired me to do and that I'm doing and making a living, whatever it may be, it's, that's God's gift to me. And therefore, I'm going to do my work as unto God. And it matters. It really, really matters. Two things Solomon's experiment in, you know, he's pursuing life in these things, pleasure, wisdom, work. Two things for sure I think we can take out of it so far is that we were made for more than this world offers and to live expecting this world to satisfy is to miss the good that is right in front of us. See, I'm getting back to this. He says, he says just look, he says, eat, drink, and tell your soul this is good and your job's good. But if we're pursuing, if we're pursuing life to give us something, then we'll miss what's right in front of us. And what's right in front of you? The gift of your work. It actually gets bigger than this. And I don't want you to miss it. Do you notice that Solomon sees the ability for a person in the midst of their labor to eat, drink, and say, this is good. He sees it as from the hand of God. Verse 24, he says, no one can experience enjoyment without him. So it's without God. Verse 26, it is God who has given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. I'm trying to come at this from some different angles to, to make this one point. And I think Ian Proven said it best when he comments on this passage and on the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole with one sentence, and it's this. Life in God's world is gift, not gain. Now, that's a sentence you got to sit with for a moment. Life in God's world is gift, not gain. What's he saying? He, I think he's saying this. Life is not life. Experience of life is not something we work at so that I have life. It's something we receive from the hand of God. Solomon has come to realize that enjoying the life that he has is itself a gift from God. Someone I read said it along these lines. It's like everyone, you know, gets a everyone gets a can of beans or a can of, you know, icing. But only those who trust Christ get the can opener. Th that's true. As sons and daughters of the king, we, we open the can and taste it and delight in it. 
as no others. Life in God's world is gift, not gain. This is, by the way, the acceptance that leads to joy. When we, when we accept that, you know what? Wisdom, work, pleasures in life, they're gifts that I gladly receive from a God who so loves me. Solomon is not gaslighting us. That, there's, there is within all of us, I believe this, that sense that everything in life comes up short. Every, every good thing comes up like it's just not quite enough. And Solomon's saying, yes, yes, that's the reality. That's the reality. Hang on to it. And let it point you to God who's gifted you and gifted your life. Now here's, here's where we do run into a bit of a dead end and I'll wrap up here. There's this thing, you know, if I'm living life, there's this thing I'm going, okay, I want to enjoy life. I want to I eat, drink, truly eat, drink, and enjoy the pleasure of life. Even my work and the labor I do, this is a gift from God. I'll accept it. But I look out in front of me and there's something out there that I cannot avoid. And Solomon said, the fool and the wise person cannot avoid that. And this is really throwing a kink in things. What is it that's in front of every one of us? Oh my, but what about death? What about it? Well, our only hope is that physical death is not the end. Because if physical death is the end, then Paul would say, you know, basically, then we're all fools because we, we don't think it is. But if it, if it is the end, we're all fools. But also, if it's the end, then it is absolutely wise to get everything out of this life you can, isn't it? I mean, I, I, if, if someone said, well, I'm going to die one day and it's all going to be over, then I'd say, but I don't want to enjoy life. And I'd go, that sounds crazy to me. If that's the end, then do all you can, get all you can, hold all you can, get everything you got because then it's over. The Bible tells us is that physical death is certain for everyone. But it's not the end. See, see the Bible tells us that we are, we are soul and body, that we, we have a soul that lives forever. It's the, truly who we are. And this is just an encasing. You know, it matters. But when, when the soul leaves the body... The body, you know, it rots, quite frankly, and the soul lives forever. So the question is not, hey, I want to live forever. The question is, where are you going to live forever? Are you going to be with God or apart from God? That's the question of life. But as believers, we look at death and we go, okay, it's there, but it's not the end. In fact, death, when it, when it comes, if I've placed my faith in Christ... If I believe Jesus died for my sins, was buried and rose again, and he did it for me. If I believe that, then when death comes, I will my soul will be separated from my body, but I don't have to pay the penalty for my sin, which means I don't ever have to be separated from God. 
we'll all be separated from our physical bodies for a while. You know, and then there's going to be another resurrection. But oh my, the death of being separated from our God forever, that's hell. And so Jesus made a way so that death is not the end, but it's actually the beginning of life with God forever and ever. And I don't know, now this is just me giving you my opinion. I don't know how a person can eat, drink, and enjoy life if they haven't dealt with death. I don't know how you do that. But if you have dealt with death in Christ, then death is no longer the object that's going to crush you. Now, some of you have already figured this out, but those numbers clicking behind, that is not a number for you to go get your child out. You know, number 4,838, What is that? What do you think it is? It's the world death clock. And so that number represents how many people have died since 935 when this service began around the world. That's a fact. Um, every, it's about this. Every second, two people die. And one day, that'll be your number. Boom. You'll be one of those. Okay, everybody take out their chocolate and eat it. Enjoy it. No, no, we can't. But I'll tell you this. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you can. You can. Everything Solomon writes, now it's not explicit, but it's implicit. Pleasure, wisdom, work that lasts forever, meaning, it's all pointing to the one who can bring all that to us. It's always pointing at Jesus. When we've trusted him, I believe this only when, can you go through life even in the difficult points and say this is gift? I had someone ask me uh, last service, they said, I, just, I don't know, I, I hate it, you, you teach this, and then I've got all these questions, I want to talk about it, blah, 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 blah. You know, and and, and you know, she's in our fellowship group, so I say, well, we do talk about it in our fellowship group, but, but you do, you, you, you kind of have these questions, and, and she says, well, what happens when bad things happen? I can't just say this is a gift. And I, and, and I said, I, yeah, I know. It's not like, oh, thank you for this gift that my wife has. Can't, I, I, wouldn't, I, that's, I wouldn't say that, thank you for this gift. But even in the worst things, we have to say, thank you for the gift of knowing that you're in control. Thank you for the gift of knowing that we know where this is all. See what I'm saying? It's like, we don't thank God for evil. Don't do that. And I said, well, you know, part of this is, I want to make this as practical as I can. You guys are going to leave here and maybe go eat lunch or go spend time with family. What I think Solomon is saying is, whatever you do this afternoon, Consider every moment a gift. I don't know, you get to eat lunch with your family, just what a gift. You got to go run an errand, 
Well, your car's running. What a gift, you know. But everything is... Life in God's world is what? Gift. Life is not gain. It's receiving the gracious gifts of God. And there's no greater gift than Christ. Let's stand together. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your word, for this experiment that Solomon is living out right in front of our eyes. He's doing it that we might not have to jump in the ditch that he finds himself in. My prayer, Lord, is if there's anyone in this room right now or on video watching who has never placed their trust in Christ, may this be the day. Otherwise, death looms. It casts its dark shadow across life. And there really is no joy. There really is no eating and drinking and saying this is good. But in Christ, having received the greatest gift, God, would you help us to be a people that see life itself as gift? For when we do, oh, how we'll enjoy it. And how gratitude will flow through us. And we can say, this is good. This is from the hand of God. Amen. And God bless.